Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We continue our study on Daniel. He's a man of God, a young man who was taken to Babylon in his young teenage years. And here he and his friends face a number of challenges to their faith, their faith in the one true God. And here in Daniel chapter 3, highlights a challenge to the faith of three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will be reading the entire chapter. Daniel chapter 3. Verse 1. The scriptures read, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Udura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, quote, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But... Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it usually was heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, your servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor was their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree 
that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the preciousness of your word, the example of these three who are willing, O Lord, to live a life of no compromise, willing to give their life, for they loved you even more than their own life. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an article in the Mission News Network entitled South Asian Nation Struggles to Shape Itself. South Asian Nation Struggles to Shape Itself. It tells about a mission agency, a Christian mission agency called Asian Access in South Asia that listed a series of questions. That listed a series of questions that some church planters have been asking new believers who are considering Baptism. They don't mention the name of the country because of safety concerns, but this particular country is predominantly Hindu, but over the past few decades, Christianity has grown in popularity, especially among poor and tribal people. But the following seven questions serve perhaps as a reality check for these new followers of Jesus and what they might experience if they decide to quote-unquote go public with their decision to follow Christ. And these are the seven questions that even you might ask yourself. For these who wanted to proclaim their faith in baptism, the first question is, quote, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Number two, are you willing to lose your job? Number three, are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Number four, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Number five, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Number six, Are you willing to go to prison? And number seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? It is a sobering reminder for all of us as Christians that in continents around the world, the cost of following Jesus is high. The questions challenge our own faith. We ask ourselves the same questions because the cost of being a true disciple of Christ, the cost of being a follower of Christ is often not counted. The cost of self-sacrifice, the cost of even death, because it calls us to a life of no compromise. And day in and day out, believers around the world are faced with the challenge that comes, the temptation of denying their faith. I'm reminded, even as I read and was preparing this week, of 
a tall Ugandan man when we were in Uganda. He was our driver. His name was Richard. His name was Richard, and he had been kidnapped as a boy by the Lord's Resistance Army, who had tried to convert him and many other children into child soldiers. What they would do, you see, they would raid a particular village. They would take the children out of those villages. They would indoctrinate them. And one of the first things they would do is they would take these children and put a machine gun, some type of pistol or something, into their hands. They would line up the villages and they would take these children and make them shoot their own parents and family. Why? Because number one, it would separate them from any family that they would possibly have because this children's army would then become their family and two, it would ostracize them from that village as the village would see what that child has done and make them never want to come back. The Lord's Resistance Army had captured Richard, tried to convert him, but God was gracious to him and he had escaped. And now he was serving the Lord helping pastors share the gospel. He was my driver on one occasion to near the Congo border. And one day he was traveling with a couple of pastors, a couple of pastors by bicycle. And they were stopped by the LRA again along the road. The LRA is a very violent group led by a man named Joseph Coney who's still on the run. They have shrunk in size and influence now, but at that time, they stopped him and the pastors. And they lined them up. One of the officers from the Lord's Resistance Army took a gun, put it to one of the pastor's heads, and asked him to deny Christ. The pastor did not, and the soldier pulled the trigger and instantly executed him with a bullet through his head right then and there. He came to the second pastor and did the same thing. And he said, will you deny Christ or something of that sort? The pastor refused and he pulled the trigger and killed him right on the spot as well with a bullet through the head. And then came Richard. They came and asked him to deny Christ and the same thing. They put a gun to his head. He said, no, he would not deny Christ. They pulled the trigger and the gun jammed. The soldier reset that gun, put it into his head and asked him once again, giving him another chance. He said no. He pulled the trigger and the gun jammed again. The officer became angry and he took someone else's gun, he put it to Richard's head and he asked him to deny Christ once again and click, the gun jammed again to which all the soldiers were terrified because they knew that something supernatural was keeping him safe, and they left him. Richard could have said, you know, maybe it might be better just to deny Christ and live, and I can be a better testimony, or I can serve more pastors, or I can accompany other pastors. No, he decided not to. He spoke what was true, and trusted in God for the results. That is the same thing we see here in these three young men who are drawing a line in the sand, unwilling to compromise their faith, unwilling to bow to a foreign God, even at the threat of death, that God would 
we would see later, honor them for that. The context here in chapter 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, the king of Babylon, likely the most powerful earthly king at that time, who had just had his dream revealed in chapter 2 by Daniel, and Daniel and his three friends were giving ruling positions within the kingdom, and perhaps spurred on by that dream where he is this head of gold, the representative of Babylon, he decides he's going to build this idol. And here we see the challenge that comes before these three young men, as we see in the early verses where Nebuchadnezzar builds this idol. He makes an image of gold, verse 1, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The text doesn't tell us when this particularly happened. It's likely that, of course, it follows after chapter 2, but he builds this image, likely also gold-plated rather than solid gold. Sometimes that's used just as a figure of speech, as you might have gold jewelry that might have impurities, but you still call it gold. But this statue was huge. It was huge. It was a statue that was 90 feet in height. That's the height of a nine-story building, about nine feet thick. Now, a particular, particular statue that tall would have required a base to simply support its height, a base which would perhaps be some 30, 40 feet, and you just can't have this high, high pole like that. It's interesting. I was reading that there was an archaeologist named Oppert, a French archaeologist, who has found an, a square structure some 45 feet and about 25 feet high, 45 feet in square in length, and it is located in an area south of Babylon in an area called the Tells of Dora. Tells simply means uh, ruins, possibly 16 miles south of Babylon, and it's possibly here that they have found that base that would be needed to support such a statue. But this statue was exceedingly tall, 90 feet tall. Compare that to the Sphinx in Egypt, the Great Sphinx, which is only 66 feet tall. Or the Great Statue of Zeus in Olympia, which was only 40 feet tall. Here Nebuchadnezzar builds this particular idol, and we don't know if it's a statue of himself, likely not, likely a statue of perhaps their god, their principal god, Marduk, because in Babylon they didn't make statues uh, or see their king as deity, unlike some places such as Egypt would. But he gathers all of these officials from his empire, and it lists there seven different classes of officials, from the most important to the least important within his kingdom. The location being 16 miles south of Babylon, one might wonder, well, where was Daniel in all of this? Here are his three friends, but there's no mention of Daniel within the story. And it's thought by commentators, perhaps at the end of chapter 2, there is a little, little verse there, a little comment, verse 49. It says, Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. So it's thought by scholars that perhaps Daniel was simply at the king's court. Somebody had to run the city while all the other officials were in the plain of Dura following the instructions of Nebuchadnezzar the king. And these are instructions. The sound of this music, they were all to bow and worship, and they shall do so. Otherwise, they would be cast 
into the midst of a furnace, a blazing fire. Nebuchadnezzar had the whole band out. He had the whole band out, and they were going to play this pomp and circumstance. And when the music played, everyone was to fall. Everyone was to worship. And if you didn't, you would be cast into this blazing furnace. And a furnace would have probably been there. It's thought that it would have been needed in order to smelt the gold or to make the bricks for this particular statue or this base. It is a huge furnace that would be there and big enough to fit people. And so the sound of the music played and all bowed and worshipped except for three people. Except for three people. We come to verse 8. This reason to that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Certainly there were some people who just had it out for these Jews. After all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had simply usurped them. Daniel had requested of the king that these three be placed into positions of power and authority. And boom, here were these foreigners who were ruling the land. And you could understand how the Chaldeans, who were known as astrologers too, would be ones who would say, hmm, looking for any chance that they might have to have their position and power back. They brought charges. Literally it is, ate the pieces of, meaning that they really had it in for these Jews. These young men had received this power, they had received this authority, and they were not too happy about it. So they were happy enough to report them. And they said to the king, these are the three things they didn't do. They pay no attention to you, king. Number two, they don't even worship your God. And particularly, they refuse to worship the golden statue the king himself has set up. And the penalty of the actions, O king, is, is as you said, that they would die. And once they told him that there were some who refused to bow, refused to follow the king's order, the king was infuriated. Verse 13 tells us that he was in rage and anger. He was livid that anyone would disobey him. Now, it's no surprise, as I mentioned last time, that he's consumed with anger. Chapter 1, Ashpenaz was afraid of the king if he found out that he was going to give Daniel some vegetables and his friends. Chapter 2, the king was so angry because none of his minions were able to tell him his dream and interpret it for him that he was going to slaughter them all. And chapter 3, here he is. Three guys get under his skin and he is furious. He's livid. He's red hot with anger. He's got issues. Why? Well, I'll tell you. There are a couple of very, very common reasons why people just have anger issues. Number one, one of them is pride. Pride. Their pride is hurt because he doesn't get what he wants. His ego is hurt. He's disrespected and he's filled with anger. Pride underlies unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger. In fact, some of the people who have the highest self-esteem, have the highest uh, amount of anger are those who are incarcerated. When you pop someone's bubble who is a person who is very prideful, they become very, very angry. Now this is different, of course, than when you're angry because God is dishonored. A righteous anger when we see Jesus becoming angry. But when you're angry simply because you don't get what you want, you don't, get, you don't like something, and somebody's personally offended you, unrighteous anger is simply sinful. 
And another common reason, just so you know, a second reason why people often get angry in counseling is often because their quote-unquote God has been poked. Their God has been poked. We've often talked about the idols of the heart, the idols of the heart, the things in our heart that we often love more than God. The temptations that come in, we choose to worship things other than God, we place as a higher priority than God, they're idols of the heart. But how do you know what the idols of your heart are? Well, all you have to do is think about what pushes your buttons. What pushes your buttons? What is it that somebody brings up that is not offensive to God, where God has not been offended, where you're not fighting for the glory of God or God doesn't consider it sin, but something that just sets you off? The idols of the heart. What are they? You can easily find out sometimes if you think for yourself what sets your kids off when you try to discipline them. If you were to punish your child for something that they did wrong and said, and you say to them, well, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to let you listen to any opera music for two weeks. <laughs> Kids might say, oh, well, sure, you can have it all for good, forever. But what if you were to say, you know, you disobeyed me, I'm going to take away your phone for two weeks. That thing that you sleep with, that you wake up with, that you play with, that you cuddle, that you spend more time with than talking to your parents. Well, you'll find out. People get very angry when you poke at their idol. People get very angry when you bring up something that they treasure in their heart. People get very angry when something that is precious to them, God is certainly not offended if you were to take away somebody's opera music or their phone. That doesn't offend God. It is not a sin. But Nebuchadnezzar's idol is very easy to spot. Nebuchadnezzar has an issue with anger, his own pride, his own self. His pride of his own position and power, even the language that is written there, he is absolutely livid that these young men have disobeyed him. So he drags these three young men in his presence and he asks them, is this true? And somehow in the bigness of his heart, he's going to give them another chance. So here's what he says. He says, look, I'm going to give, I'm going to have the band play. And when the band plays, you had better bow. Because if you don't bow, there's a big oven over there, and you're going to be toast. So, this is interesting. And then he says this at the very end to challenge their God. And he says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Now, I'm sure that he remembers that God showed him his dream through Daniel. That's one thing. But to the king, the king, well, he must be thinking, that God has limitations. And I am the king, and I am the one who is in power here. No one can save you out of my hand. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? That reminds us of another incident when there was a powerful king who boasted and mocked the God of Israel. And that would be Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who came down and besieged Jerusalem. And he mocked Hezekiah's trust in God. In 2 Kings chapter 18, he sends out this this herald. And he says through this herald, 
to Hezekiah and all the people in Jerusalem. He says this in verse 32 of 2 Kings 18. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you. And they've got 185,000 plus men outside who are besieging Jerusalem. And he says, do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. As any one of the gods of the nations delivered his hand, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria, in other words, look, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, has come across the land and wiped out every single people who has come into his pathway. No gods are able to stand before the king of Assyria, and neither shall yours. So don't listen to Hezekiah. Chapter 19 tells us what happens. Second Kings 19 tells us that the next day, an angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 men causing Sennacherib to retreat. 185,000 slain just overnight. You can, by the way, you can go to London's museum there and see reliefs and archaeology naming Sennacherib and all of these great accomplishments. Of course, they're not going to name all the bad things such as this that happened. That's one of the criticisms. Like, where does he record that 185? No, kings don't record things that are catastrophic like this. But likewise, the king Nebuchadnezzar taunts God by saying, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now, some of the, someone might say, well, look, here are, these, here are these young men. They're placed in a no-win situation. On the one hand, they die if they don't bow. On the other hand, they sin if they do. But if you look at it from a different perspective, they are in a win-win situation. If they do what is right, no matter what the outcome is, God is glorified. If they live, God has protected them. Oh, praise God, and they have life. If they die, they're in eternity. And God has been granted a powerful witness of those whose faith and trust is in him. In either case, God is made great by their obedience. Their response here, their response here is so very key and inspiring. It inspired the Jewish patriots of the Maccabean revolt. When Rome came and fought against them, Antiochus Epiphanes came and desecrated the temple, and the Jews fought, and it was this particular passage that inspired the Jews to continue to stand up for their God. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't need to think about it. We don't need to think about it. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We don't need to give it a second thought. Our God can. He'll deliver us out of your hand either way. Even if he does not, we're still not going to bow. They didn't rationalize it away and say, well, maybe if we bow, we'll live and be able to be a good witness in the future. Better to do more for God alive than dead. 
They didn't rationalize it away and say, well, if we bow, we won't be causing waves. We won't be causing waves. We'll just kind of half bow. We can turn others to God and be a witness. They didn't say, I wonder if we do more by being alive or being dead. That didn't even come across their mind. That's how the world wants us to think. The world wants the word of God to be flexible, to be unclear, a mere set of suggestions, a mere set of good ideas. In our postmodern society, they don't want laws. They don't want black and white. They don't want something that is called sin. They don't want anything that takes a stand where there's a clear line of demarcation. No, they want everything to be sort of gray. They want you to be able to say, well, go ahead and sin. God will forgive you. They want you to rebel and set what your own standard is of right and wrong. But God has clearly said in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them and or serve them. And that is an absolute. God hates idolatry. God hates idolatry. The world wants you to look at the potential outcome. That's what they hope you'll do if you're in an ethical situation. They'll look at the potential outcome and based upon what you think will happen, well, then you make your decision. You imagine the future, they say. You imagine the future, and based upon your own judgment, you decide what you're going to do. Or the ends justify the means. In ethics, that's called a teleological ethic. And a teleological ethic says this is results-based. That determines right or wrong. But Christian worldview, God's view is an ontological, what they call an ontological ethic. And an ontological ethic is based upon the absolute standard, an absolute standard of the Word of God. You trust God, you obey God, you follow the Word of God, and you leave the results to Him. Maybe God wants someone to die. Maybe God wants someone to give their lives. Maybe God wants, as part of His divine plan, you don't make your decisions based upon what you think could happen because you really don't know what will happen. You make your decisions based upon what the Word of God tells you and what the Word of God says. We don't know the future, but we know what God has commanded. And when it is clear, we are not to compromise. It's expressed here. They knew that God could save them. He may choose not to, and that's okay. Even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They realize there is no compromise when it comes to obedience to the word of God. And here before the most powerful man here on earth at that time, the immense peer pressure upon these teens or perhaps even early 20s, these young men stood before him, before all of the rulers of the kingdom, of the superpower of the world, and they took a stand because they loved God more than they loved their own life. They had everything earthly to keep if they would simply bow. But they were going to risk it all for the sake of obedience to the Lord. Hebrews 12.4 tells us 
you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Think about that. Would you be willing, just as those seven questions would be, to die for Christ? I remember many years ago, probably some 25 years ago or so, I had a friend who, we were in college, and my friend had recently become a Christian. They were talking with me about being baptized. He knew that baptism was a command of God, but he was in college, he was living at home, and his parents told him, it's okay if you go to church, it's okay if you go to fellowship, but if you get baptized, we will disown you. They were parents who had another religion. He didn't know what to do. We talked about it. He didn't know where he would go or any sort of thing. And he was torn inside of his own heart because he was still living at home. What would you advise him to do? What would you tell him to do if you were his friend and he asked you, should I or shouldn't I? My family will disown me. My family, of course, will kick me out of the house. My family will no longer help me with college. I have no place to live. What would you tell him? What should you do? What would you do? What would you do if you were in his shoes? Would you say, well, you know, what you need to do is look at what might happen and you can ignore the command. You don't need to be baptized in order to be saved. You don't need to obey God. You're an adult. You really can maybe be a better witness if you just live at home. Is that what you'd say? Or would you say, don't get baptized because you'll lose your relationship with your parents? After all, they're, they won't understand. You'll be able to live at home and just wait perhaps five years after you get out of college and uh, you can move out and it will keep your relationship intact. Maybe you could share the gospel with them. Would you say that? Well, he had to own his own decision. A short time later, I remember him coming and telling me his decision. And his decision was he was going to get baptized because it was a command of God. God commanded him to in Matthew 28. He was a new believer, but he knew he wanted to do what was right in the sight of God. I can still remember that day in my mind's eye as I remember him getting baptized. And I remember that day particularly because it was all by the grace of God that on the day of his baptism, I saw his parents, his siblings, his family and relatives all pile into church and sit in the second and third rows right there. And they listened to the gospel, they listened to his testimony, and they didn't disown him. God worked in their life in his transforming power. He was willing to be disowned by his own family and no longer to be called their son in order to follow the command of God. Maybe that 
might be you today. Maybe you're a Christian and you've never been baptized. You know it's a command of God. You know that God commands very clearly in Matthew chapter 28 that you are to be baptized. Maybe you think that it's optional. Maybe you think, well, I'll be so embarrassed. Maybe you're afraid to tell others that you're a Christian. Or maybe you somehow rationalize it away. My encouragement to you is that if you are a child of God, obey the command of God. Obey the command of God. Are you willing to do so? like these three young men, to take a stand and follow God. My friend did. My friend did, and God brought them here. He didn't, as far as I know, bring them to salvation, but they heard the gospel, and they, I'm sure, had a respect for their son because he took a stand. Do you love God more than you love your life? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath when he heard that, verse 19. He was filled with wrath. Once again, they disobeyed him. His facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Here he flies off the handle. He flies off the handle. He loses it. He tells them that's a figure of speech seven times more than it's usually heated, meaning that he had him heated as hot as he possibly could. And he has the three of them all dressed up. You see, it says that they wore their hats. I don't know why they wore their hats, their clothes, their trousers, everything. Perhaps they thought if they put more stuff on them, they'll burn up more quickly. Archaeological finds seem to indicate the, the types of furnaces that they would have. They would have a furnace where there would be an opening at the top. Apparently, they would throw them down into it. And they had called these valiant men, these valiant men, his own soldiers, to bring these men bound and to toss them into the furnace. What happens? Ironically, they are killed. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. Loyalty to the pagan king brought death, not life. Loyalty to God brought life, not death. Some who might be in the shoes of these three young men might say to themselves, well, I'm on the authority of the king and God established authority. Romans 13, I better just do what he says. Not these men. Loyalty to God brought life, not death. And we see that here in verse 24. As King Nebuchadnezzar was astounded and stood up, was it not three men who were cast into the fire? Certainly, O king, why do I see four, he says. Why do I see four? A fourth man, like a son of the gods. And the King James Version says, a son or the son of God, implying that it was Jesus, but might take it a bit far because the rendering of it is probably more accurate, like a son of the gods. For one reason, Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheistic king. Babylon was one who had many gods, a primary god, sure, but there would be nothing, I think, in his own belief system that would think that it is the son of God, as he exclaims. And furthermore, later on, he says it's an angel that he saw. Jews believe that this is the angel Gabriel, but most Christians believe that this is the angel of the Lord, that it is the pre-incarnate Christ. Doesn't exactly say, but very well could be. 
What God does here, though, is he saves them. He saves them. After they are taken out of the fire, the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Nor was the hair on the head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. They didn't even smell like smoke. God had protected them. John Calvin observes that God could very well have said, well, I'll extinguish the flames of the fire in order to save these young men, but he chose instead to save them in the fire, not from the fire, he says. These young men literally experienced what Isaiah 43, 2 says, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God chose to save these men. These men did not test God, no. They knew that very well God could have chosen to not save their lives, but they still would not bow. So what does God do? God chooses to honor them because they honored him. Nebuchadnezzar praises acknowledges God as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 28, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had put, number one, their trust in him. They violated the king's command. They had yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. What a godly character. Put your trust in God. Violate when it violates the word of God. Yield up your own body so as what? Not to ever serve any other God. The king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Notice what King Nebuchadnezzar here does not do. He, of course, makes a decree that anybody who speaks anything offensive against God will be torn limb to limb and their houses reduced to rubbish heap, but he doesn't turn himself to God. He doesn't acknowledge that God is the only God or the one true God. No. He makes this declaration. In fact, you might even think to yourself that maybe he might have made this declaration because he was afraid. He was afraid that he had challenged God and God had answered in a miraculous way and now he perhaps was afraid of his own judgment that might come upon him. And so he declares something that would protect possibly him or appease God. God honored these young men. It says in 1 Samuel 2 verse 30, But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. There was no promise for deliverance, no promise of God's favor or honor for these young men, except of what they had already known. Faithfulness to God brings reward. Would you do the same? Who were you? People are blinded to their own idolatry. We are, have our own blind spots. Do we have idols in our own heart? Isaiah speaks of idols in a very, very clear way. Isaiah 44, if you'll turn in your Bibles to me, a couple of points of application. Isaiah chapter 44, the question at hand is, is there idolatry in your own heart? Is there idolatry in your own heart? Isaiah 44. Here's a picture of what Isaiah paints. Isaiah 44 verse 12. 
condemnation against the folly or the foolishness of idolatry. Here, Isaiah 44, verse 12. And he describes a man shapes iron into a cutting tool. And he does his work over the coals, and he fashions it with hammers and working with his strong arms. He also gets hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. So here's an iron worker. He's making something sharp, a cutting tool. He gets tired and hungry. Verse 13, another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass, and he makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. So here's another person who's shaving, carving something, a piece of wood into a form of a man. Surely, he said, he cuts cedars for himself, and he takes cypress or an oak. He raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it into a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it and also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is their knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and have also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? You see? He says, people cut down a tree. Half of it, they build a fire, they roast meat, they warm themselves, they say, this is a good thing. Half of it, they build into an altar or build into an idol, and they bow down and worship it, and they offend God. The futility of that which is inanimate, the worship of the created rather than the creator. Now, in the U.S., people might say, you don't really face the temptation of idolatry like that. Commentator Tremper Longman writes, The temptation can come from a variety of sources, not all of which seem so bad on the surface. Our addictions can make a pleasure an idol, so that all our efforts and thoughts are directed towards where we will get our next high, whether through alcohol, drugs, sex, or some other cheap thrill. We might seek power, not just pleasure, power in order to control our world or simply have the resources of revenge towards those who have hurt us in some way. All our efforts and strength thus become directed towards amassing power and influence in society, our family, or even the church. We may take relationships, he writes, or one particular relationship, an idol. We may make during our life and decisions not around what we understand the word of God's will, but around the will of a spouse or a child, or a friend, 
seeking knowledge or degrees, writing books, delivering impressive sermons. These too may become idols. The list is vast, which is why the danger is so real. The seduction is subtle, which is why we can slip so easily into idol worship. But though subtle and varied, I suggest that idolatry, whether of Nebuchadnezzar's sort or the kind we discover in our own hearts, ultimately has one object. When the masks are ripped away, behind every idol is self. Unquote. Just think, every single morning, we pamper our idol, we get up, we spend a long time taking care of ourselves, we look at our idol in our own mirrors, we say, hmm, you look good today. (laughs) Think about that. Our idol is often ourselves, our own pride, our own self, our own desires, we say me rather than God will be done. As John Calvin would put, the greatest idol-making factory is not in India or someplace far away. It's in the idol-making factory of our heart. And something becomes more important than God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Do you have idols in your own heart and life? Secondly, are you willing to die for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Jesus? Because a life without compromise is a difficult life to live. But when it comes to obedience to the clear command of God, the line in the sand ought to be drawn. It is a life that will have risk, a life that will require sacrifice, a life when you will feel left out, a life when you will perhaps be ostracized or mistreated. How can you live a life like that? Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 28. He tells us, do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The comparison is clear. Are you more afraid of people and what people may think of you or what people may do to you or what people may say about you or are you more afraid of what God may think and how God is pleased or not? Many years ago, and I'll close with this, it seems that school shootings are so much more common these days, but back in the 1990s, it wasn't so. The first major tragedy that really made a lot of waves was that massacre at Columbine, 1999, April 20th. There was a young lady there, 17 years old. She had become a strong Christian. She was outspoken for her faith. Her name was Rachel Scott. She wrote, quote, I am not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus. I'm not going to justify my faith to them. And I'm not going to hide the light that God has put in me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will." Little did she know that she would do that very thing. Her brother, in an interview, recalls what happened that day when the two shooters came into the building. They saw Rachel. She was shot 
at a distance. He says when the shooters approached the school, these are the stairs. They walked up, he says, and he was showing a reporter. And when they got to the top of the stairs, that's when they saw Rachel. They shot her from a distance. She was mocked for her faith. They knew her. They had a class with her. The last moment of her life was when Eric picked her up by her hair and said, you still believe in God? And she said, you know I do. And he said, well, go be with him. I hope that that will be our answer too, that we will profess our faith in Christ even if it means suffering unto death because it is a privilege that has been granted to us not only to have life, but to know the suffering of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you as people who have a faith that is often so very tenuous and we often fail in our own sin. We pray, God, that as we have seen these examples of faith, that, Lord, we would love you more than life, that we would desire, Lord, to live a life of no compromise when it comes to the things and the principles of your word. We pray, God, that you would help us, O oh God, to never deny you, to follow you, and to be faithful to you, to love your word, knowing that you are the one who will take care of our future, knowing that you are the one we can trust. So, Father, we entrust ourselves to you for your glory and your name's sake. In his name we pray. Amen.